Hey everybody, how's it going? Thanks for joining me this afternoon. I've got a great stream with a great guest that I think you're really going to enjoy. So all of the time I hear about, man, Nick Land is just impossible to read. Now, Nick Land, for those who aren't familiar, is one of kind of the core thinkers in what's called the neo-reactionary sphere. He's somebody who has really pushed the edge of what kind of many people think about when it comes to right-wing political theory. And fair enough to those people, Nick Land is often kind of indecipherable. He's, he's not a, a, a light read, to be sure. However, he does say some really important things. And since he is so important to what I think is some cutting-edge uh, right-wing political theory, I think it is important to take the time and understand him, even though he might be a little more difficult than, say, somebody like uh, Curtis Yarvin, who is already kind of difficult. So I understand why some people might enjoy uh, maybe having this broken down, explained a little bit in detail, going through it slowly so we can all kind of understand it together. So I'm going to start doing that in a series here. And to kick this off, I have hot off the heels of his very long and very impressive uh, foreign policy stream, The Prudentialist. Thanks for joining me, man. Well, thanks again for having me back on so soon. I know it's like we were just here last week, but Nick Land's always fun to cover. Yeah, I know. I'm glad you're able to jump in. I know uh, I know you uh, had to, like I said, squeeze this in after everything, but I think we're going to do a good job here. I think we can kind of break this down and make it understandable to everybody. But before we do that, guys, let's go ahead and hear from today's sponsor. Are you a college student who feels isolated as Cthulhu swims ever leftward? The Intercollegiate Studies Institute is here to help. ISI offers programs and opportunities for conservative students across the country. ISI understands that conservatives and right-of-center students feel isolated on campus and that you're often fighting for your own reputation, dignity, and future. Through ISI, you can learn about what Russell Kirk called permanent things, the philosophical and political teachings that shaped and made Western civilization great. ISI also offers many opportunities to jumpstart your career. For example, Nate Hawkman, who's been a guest on this show multiple times, got his start at National Review through ISI. And he's just one of many journalists that ISI has helped start their career. If you're a graduate student, ISI offers funding opportunities to sponsor the next generation of college professors. But most importantly, ISI offers college students a community of people that will help them grow. If you're a college student, ISI can help you start a student organization or a student newspaper or meet other like-minded students at various conferences and events. ISI is here to educate the next generation of great Americans. To learn more, check out ISI.org. That's ISI.org. You can click the link down in the description to learn more. All right, guys, so we're going to go ahead and jump right into this. So the section we're going to be reading from today is from Nick Land's uh, essay, The Dark Enlightenment. This is one of his more famous works. It's in response to Curtis Yarvin and his work over at Unqualified Reservations. And so you're going to notice that he uses many Yarvinisms in this. He's going to use words like the cathedral as if we all kind of already understand what they mean, because this document is, again, in response to the work of Yarvin. Land was himself uh, kind of kind of a, a radical Marxist. He was well known for working with many uh, uh, far left uh, academics until he kind of made this weird travel to the right. Uh, one of those kind of touchstones for him during this was interacting with Curtis Yarvin's work. And so he does hold Yarvin's work in pretty high esteem as he kind of moves into this. But he's also a trained philosopher, so he brings his own uh, kind of understanding to what's going on. Uh, there are many different works of Lands. Some of them are a little more difficult. His book, Fanged Numina, is uh, quite a challenge for, for many. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say start there. 
Um, but uh, some of his passages in the Dark Enlightenment or from his Xenosystems blog are ones that I think are a little easier to tackle. We're going to kind of kick things off here. This one is is dense. It's got some some language that is uh, that requires some unpacking, but it's not impossible. It's not impenetrable. So we're going to start right here. Uh, so I'll just read here from the beginning, and we're we're literally just going to kind of stop after every line or two, and and make sure that we all kind of understand what's going on here. So in brief, dialectics can be defined as the doctrine of unity of opposites. This embodies the essence of dialectics. Lenin notes, but it requires explanation and development, and this uh, uh, and this is to say further discussion. So right away, Prudentialist, just to touch on this, we hear the word dialectic being flown, thrown around a lot, very casually. What's kind of the most basic definition? I mean, we get one there. That's pretty, that one's relatively basic, but but where, where does this kind of come from? I was about to say, that's a pretty straightforward, uh, easy to understand um, definition. But I mean, mm -hmm. uh, dialectics kind of just comes from sort of older German philosophy, you know, most explicitly Hegel, who yeah. is still, you know, a, a core tenant of a lot of leftist thinking to this day. Uh, the classical idea of, um, you know, thesis, antithesis, and bringing the two together to form some sort of synthesis in towards how we understand the world. Uh, if we want to interrogate a particular subject, a dialectic behind that would allow us to interrogate all aspects of it, apply counterfactuals, uh, debate things out in real time, in a much less open forum discussion, a much less Socratic sense, but far more confrontational to bring what is true against falsehood and see what can come from it. All right, so we're just going to go ahead and jump into our next paragraph there, because I think that was a very succinct explanation from the Prudentialists. So the sublimation of Marxism into Leninism is an eventuality that is best grasped by uh, best grasped grasped crudely by forgiving a revolutionary uh, by forging a revolutionary communist politics of broad application, almost entirely divorced from the mature material conditions of ad or advanced social contradictions that had been previously anticipated. All right, so that sounds complicated, but it's not as complicated as you probably think. So Marxism, obviously, is a very, we throw this term around a lot now, but it is a very kind of discrete philosophy, uh, at least when we're talking kind of original Marxism. And Karl Marx had a very particular idea about how his uh, vision would come about, the kind of conditions that it would arise in, the kind of uh, process that would occur to kind of lead into the events that he predicted. And those things didn't really end up coming up about the way he thought. For instance, in Russia, they didn't really have late stage capitalism or the kind of kind of capitalist contradictions that he predicted would be necessary for a communist revolution. And then one kind of happened anyway, right, Prudentialist? Well, yeah, although I think it would be important if we weren't remiss that there were some rather wealthy capitalist in interests in sort of getting Lenin and those funded over there in the uh, in the late Tsarist empire. But yes, that's pretty on point so far. Right. There there was an effort to modernize leading up to. And so, that yeah, so some of that obviously big, big thing there. But uh, but the point being is that uh, when when they're talking about Leninism, we're going to get something that's a little different from just straight up Marxism. We're going to get something that. Uh, was more designed uh, to, to kind of work inside uh, other systems here. Uh, Lenin demonstrated that dialectic tension uh, uh, tension coincided exhaustively with its pol politicalization. 
and that all reference to dialectics of nature is no more than retrospective subordination of the scientific domain to a political model. Dialectics are as real as they, uh, as they are made to be. So here we're seeing that the, basically what they kind of discovered was that dialectics did not have to occur only inside this, again, very specific Marx, uh, Marx predicted framework that they could be created in, a, in, in almost kind of any situation through the right kind of political environment. In fact, if you can just make sure that, for instance, certain differences in uh, kind of nature or science, natural limitations, or the thing against which you were agitating, then you could still kind of generate that dialectic energy. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the uh, what's in parentheses here is rather important, especially when we consider you know, the Matt Walsh documentary, like what is a woman, for instance, all reference to the dialectics of nature is no more than subordination of the scientific domain to a political model. And we've seen that more often than not when it comes to the issue of transgenderism. It does not matter what our view is on biological sex, that once we've divorced, you know, ourselves from, say, social contradictions like, you know, men can't be women or even the biological reality of men can't be women, um, as this little paragraph here denotes, then all that we're seeing is politics subsumes the actual scientific understanding of the world. And that makes it easier for you to control things because it doesn't matter what your, you know, experiment or study pro proves, you know, there's a 98% scientific consensus on all issues ranging from, say, climate change to transgenderism, the need for, you know, gender affirming care and dialectics are, are as real as they are made to be. So it does not matter that Dylan Mulvaney looks and talks and acts like a very flamboyant homosexual man. You know, for his instance, he is a woman. And that's really important, too, because remember, the basis of kind of classical Marxism is supposed to be dialectical materialism, right? It's supposed to be a very scientific, very realist view and understanding of the world, of, of kind of the way that politics is structured. It is, it is built, you know, this is, again, why I try to push in people to understand the importance of managerialism. It, it is supposed to be kind of the most objective understanding of reality around it. But what we see here is actually the most useful part of kind of the communist advance is not that dialectical materialism. Uh, or, uh, but is actually, uh, you, you can take that entirely out of kind of its adherence to a specifically scientific understanding of the world and still advance the dialectic. That still works. That politicalization and that advancement uh, still works, even if you can kind of remove it, separate it from the scientific domain, as he points out here. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, and you see this more times than not, right? I mean, when Paul Ryan was still in Congress, he had famously made his point that, you know, we have spent over a trillion dollars on the war on poverty and people are still as poor as ever. And it hasn't lifted that many people out of poverty. That's a scientific reality, right? And how can we address to, you know, fight poverty or to address a, you know, discrepancies and differences between groups uh, in a way that's more effective and more grounded in fact? Well, dialectically, as again, as we're talking about here, if you, you don't need to have it with Leninism um, like classical Marxism. You don't need it to be exactly materialist. You don't need to look at the raw conditions on the ground because if you can churn up a crowd with political rhetoric, say like former Vice President Joe Biden saying that 
you know, then presidential candidate Mitt Romney is going to put black people back in chains. It doesn't matter what great factual based argument that you have or that you're proving so hard that you're not sexist, that you have a binder full of women candidates that you want for cabinet positions. The It can be completely divorced from reality. And politically, you know, he wants to kill Big Bird and he wants to you know, make sure that, you know, women are back in camps or whatever. Like, that's the way that this works. And we've seen this throughout our modern um, political back and forth between the left and the right. Exactly. So the dialectic begins with political agitation and extends no further than its practical, antagonistic, factional, and coalition, uh, coalitional logic. That is the superstructure, uh, uh, sorry, it is the superstructure for itself or against natural limitations. This is going to be really important here, guys. Um, practically appropriating the political sphere in its broadest, uh, broadest graspable extension as a platform for social domination. Everywhere there is an argument, there is an unresolved opportunity to rule. As you can guess, that's really important because that's what we name the stream here, right? So let's go to the beginning of this paragraph because it's so important. The dialectic begins with political agitation and extends no further than its practical, antagonistic, factional, and coalitional logic. This is something I try to explain to people all the time, so much, especially conservatives, all the time. Well, of course it's wrong. It, it, it's not scientific. They told me they cared about science. Well, of course, uh, of course it, that's wrong. It, it doesn't make everyone equal. They told me they cared about equality. Well, of course that's wrong. You know, uh, it, that doesn't support free speech. And they told me that they cared about free speech. But no, guys, <laughs> this only extends as far as it needs to, only to the, the edge of the coalitional logic, only enough so that it advances the power of the coalition and no further. Yeah, I mean, a really good example of this, and it's been cited before, both by conservatives and even liberals, has always been like Saul Alinsky's rules for radicals. Those rules in there about, say, accusing your enemy of what you are doing or slandering about them, that is political agitation, and it's practically antagonistic to ensure that your faction wins and that the other guy gets called a racist or a bigot or whatever goal that you're trying to accomplish in order to make him look like a hypocrite. And you'll notice that that kind of only works in one particular direction. Uh, it doesn't matter if you have all the facts and logic on your side, very Ben Shapiro style, Young Americans for Liberty kind of argument against college leftists. Those college leftists understand that they're there for political agitation. And it doesn't matter that their logic is full of scientific or realistic contradictions because they're here for the sole purpose of changing the direction of that argument. And it doesn't matter if, you know, you have all of those great clips where you own the libs with your arguments, um, because for them, it illustrates that they can wear that argument down as long as it's necessary uh, to rule over you. And I mean, this is the same way that we've seen the debates over everything ranging from um, same-sex marriage to um, even more recently now with transgenderism or even this, you know, new federal holiday that some people have off today. Uh, it doesn't matter what the logic is for. It doesn't matter if it doesn't apply to everybody. It only has to work for a small faction of people that can grasp it and then fight and punch through to get their argument on the side of victory. And that's what it means to be on the right side of history is, is that you've antagonized the politics so much that your side is won and they've been worn down and they accept it. Exactly. And we'll go, he'll go more into here as to kind of why this works much better for the left than for the right. Uh, but for those who have only ever heard the phrase Cthulhu swims slowly, but he only swims to the left. That's from Curtis Yarvin, but 
but this is kind of land ex expanding on that concept by uh, in the Dark Enlightenment. Remember, this passage is a response to Curtis Yarvin. And so he's he's kind of breaking out and explaining in kind of a little more technical technical and philosophical language kind of why that observable phenomenon occurs. So it is the superstructure for itself or against natural limitations, uh, practically appropriating the political sphere in its broadest graspable extension as a platform for social domination. So what does this mean? All right. So for those who don't know, in Marxism, you have the base and the superstructure. And the superstructure is basically like all the justification and apparatus that kind of keeps the ruling class in power, that uh, that, that kind of puts itself uh, kind of above and controls kind of what's what's going on with production and everything else. Uh, there's a lot more to it, but, that, but that, that's just the, the, the very quick gloss over there. So when he says, uh, uh, when it says it's a superstructure for itself or against natural limitations, what he's saying is that basically you can you you again don't need those classically Marxist conditions. You don't need those revolutionary conditions of late stage capitalism, all these contradictions, all that stuff that Marx predicted, because you can literally set yourself against nature. You can literally set yourself against natural limitations. For those who are familiar with Spandrel's idea of bioleninism, this is kind of also uh, gets expanded out of this, and so by setting yourself against those natural limitations, you can basically take the sphere of the political to anything because there will always be natural limitations. There will always be uh, natural hierarchies. And if you're fighting against nature itself, if you're creating a revolution against nature itself, there's always a new place that your power needs to expand. There's always a new place, a new thing that you need to conquer in order to bring it under your control so you can kind of create that promised equality or whatever your promise is here. And then this is the most important part, of course. Everywhere there is an argument, there is an unresolved opportunity to rule. And this is what uh, Prudentialist was talking about there, right? Can a man become a woman? Well, no, right? Like that's obvious. Everyone knew that. There was no contention about that fact. So if there's no contention over that fact, there's no disagreement. And if there's no disagreement, then there's no political power there because that's just a foundational part of reality. That is an axiom on which everyone must, must then build their understanding of reality. The right builds its institutions on the understanding that this one person cannot become an entirely different person. They cannot change their biological sex. That cannot happen. And so there's no disagreement. But if they create a disagreement, if a partitioning can be created if a faction can be created then you create an argument and once there's an argument now there's an unresolved opportunity to rule now there's something to argue about there's sides to be taken there's 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 factions to be created all of a sudden where there was no political energy you've created political energy by kind of shattering this these these standard bonds these traditional bonds these natural bonds that were already kind of holding what would be considered maybe a right-wing understanding of the world together yeah absolutely and i think it's important to understand that again when it's separated from the material conditions so if you're not operating under late stage capitalism you're not looking at the actual facts on the ground of how the workers are 
this means that you can abstract this to what's necessary to, to make your point across. So where every argument, there's an unresolved opportunity to rule, where there's an argument, there's always going to be some underlying state of exception between you and the person you're arguing with. So it doesn't matter that you don't believe in all of the left-wing things that they do, because to them, with when there's an argument, you are generating a disagreement that says, this person is an existential threat to my existence, and I have to rule over them in order to not be killed. Um, and that's sort of the logic that you're going to see out of these sort of dialectics. Like, that's why banning transgender affirming care um, by state legislatures, for, for us, we don't want to castrate children. But for sides that advocate for this, you're literally advocating for transgender genocide uh, under their argumentation. And that's where this is, is where there's an argument, there's an unresolved opportunity to rule. And for them, if they're motivating ideas, well, we have to stop genocide. Well, then they're going to do stop at nothing to make sure that that happens. And this is how their dialectic works. Exactly. And that's why it's so important to always create tension. This is something, again, the right doesn't understand. As long as they can start, they can chip away at a, a monolithic understanding of something, then they've already started the process by which you will lose. This is also why I often say on Twitter, to have this debate is to lose it. Because by accepting that there is even a debate to be had, you end up opening up the door to uh to this phenomenon so for instance a lot of people right now are talking about juneteenth in the in the chat right they're they're joking you're wishing everybody a new juneteenth and there are a lot of conservatives who are like okay well i don't like slavery so yeah sure have a holiday about getting rid of slavery great fantastic what they don't understand is that's not what that holiday is for that holiday doesn't exist so you can celebrate the end of slavery that a holiday exists, a holiday that no one really knew out of maybe outside of a handful of people in Texas. Uh, nobody really knew across the nation suddenly got elevated out of nowhere. Why did it get elevated to create an argument, to create an opportunity to rule? Because once people are debating about, well, Juneteenth, is it the real? I mean, is that really when our Independence Day comes? I mean, that was independence for everybody, right? Like July 4th, that was just independence for, you know, some, some white slaveholders. But, but Juneteenth is really independence for everyone. And all of a sudden, even conservatives who are like, uh, you know, who, who, again, are saying, oh, I didn't like slavery, so I'm for this. All of a sudden, they're arguing about the real meaning of Juneteenth. No, no, Juneteenth isn't about reparations it's about you know uh celebrating abraham lincoln and the fight for for you know the emancipation proclamation or whatever and all of a sudden you have a situation where uh th this thing that did not exist beforehand is already creating tension already creating factions already creating that opportunity to rule once again yep i mean that's that's what it's going to be down to every time is, I mean, we, we saw this with like the Fox news opinion. There was an, an op-ed out from the American conservative talking about what is the meaning behind Juneteenth or whatnot. And it sort of tries to play this abstraction game when what its original purpose for, and has been since it was declared a federal holiday in this poor attempt. And Nick land talks about this later on in this, in the dark enlightenment, I highly recommend that you read it, but um, it, it illustrates that they're not understanding that this is a rhetorical holiday this is a rhetorical tool to levy against what they perceive to be their enemy and who they want to rule over so i mean oh no it's not independence day for everybody it's independence day for us our, our ethnic narcissism is telling us that no we have to abide by this and we're going to use it as a wedge issue to rule over us and to rule over you and to get what we want whether that be reparations or uh, black only spaces at college education and putting things down on the basis of race and making it anti-white uh, that's that's how this is going to work. And the quicker that I think more conservatives recognize that how these tools work, 
uh, the better off the, the conservative movement would be in the U.S. Well, and that's kind of the thing, right? That's the beauty of this strategy. The left are are counting on a piece of human nature, which is once you see something, you want to confront it, you want to explain it, you want to categorize it, you want to synthesize it. You know, the the, the dialectic process isn't just out of nowhere. These guys didn't just make it up. They were recognizing a truth of human nature and kind of what it wants to do. And so when the left hang these things out there, the right just walks up to, to them in good faith. They say, oh yeah, of course, no, let's have a debate about it. Yeah, marketplace of ideas, best idea wins, let's do this. Not understanding that those things have been placed in front of them for a reason. That that these things are, the, the left understands what it's doing here. It's very crafty about this. And instead of just looking at every single thing that gets flashed in front of you on Fox News or on Twitter or wherever, and saying, oh, this is something I have to debate about. Instead, you need to take that step back. You need to play the board and not just the piece and say, why are they putting this piece in front of me? Why did they move that pawn there? What does that mean? And understand that there's more behind that. But we could get stuck on this point all day. We'll, we'll, we'll be elaborating it here as we go. So let's try to get a little further in here. The cathedral incarnates these, uh, incarnates these lessons. It has no need to espouse Leninism or operational communist dialectics because it recognizes nothing else. All right, real short there, but I think pretty obvious uh, credentialist. What does that mean here? It recognizes nothing else. So yeah, what Jarvin would call the cathedral, which is typically sort of the academic media consensus, I mean, government as well. Um, and uh, he sort of, I think I'm going to take it to the next sentence as well. Sure. Because uh, Leninism or the operational communist dialectics, that, that's what they're solely operating on. There's no need to say that I'm a Leninist when all of my rhetoric, all of my political formulation is Leninist in nature. There is scarcely a fragment of the social superstructure that has escaped dialectical reconstruction um, you know, through articulate antagonism, polarization, binary structuring and reversal. Um, what he's what Land is arguing here and what I think is very observable in our political environment is, is that, you know, I don't think Barack Obama, for instance, is a Marxist. Um, you know, maybe he, he touted with Marxist ideas. You know, he talks about reading Foucault to get laid in college, but he's, you know, not someone I would consider advocating for like the proletariat revolution of that day. But what he is advocating for is to realign society because that's all that he has to do when he talks about fundamentally transforming the country, right? When he was elected. And so all of our social rules, all of our bonds, Nothing has escaped this antagonism of, of, of politics. Our definition of what a man is has not survived dialectical reconstruction. The United States has not survived dialectical reconstruction. When we ask about what is America, well, America wasn't a nation of settlers primarily from England that made a new country for themselves. No, it's a nation of immigrants. And so it doesn't matter that, you know, they don't need to call themselves Leninists. They don't need to even espouse Leninism or Marxism um, because that's all that they recognize. That's the left entropic force that the cathedral has incarnate of. That's why Curtis Yarvin and, and Nick Land here kind of embodied the idea that for the left, the, the cathedral, the regime, whatever you want to call it, um, they are a force of entropy because they reconstruct everything dialectically, they're antagonistic, and everything must be broken down. Because again, every time that you break something down in an argument like this, you're creating more power and more opportunity to rule over the people that you deem to be your political enemies. Exactly. And so when they say, he says, you don't need to espouse this, it's because that's the only thing that they even operate on anyway. It's the only thing that people even understand at this point, because the cathedral dominates all of these media interactions. They dominate all these social interactions. 
they dominate all these academic interactions and of course government interactions and therefore this is what people kind of recognize as the normal social process at this point he goes on further to say within uh, the academia the media even fine arts political super uh, saturation has prevailed identifying even the most minuscule elements of apprehension uh, with conflictual social critique and egalitarian teleology communism is the universal implication so like the pretentious was saying this is this has penetrated everything every sphere of society not just the the originally political sphere but it's moved well beyond it's it's every interpersonal in, uh, uh, interaction every religious interaction everything in the uh, the academia every piece of media you consume all of it is super saturated in politics and that is because that is what allows them to reconstruct everything to uh, to put everything on this egalitarian teleology here right and that is what it basically what is what is what is your video game about it's about egalitarianism what is religion about it's about egalitarianism what is your politics about it's about egalitarianism what is your art about it's about egalitarianism what what is your conversation with your friend on friday night about well it better be about egalitarianism because otherwise he will think you're against the party because communism is the universal implication guys when i talk about the total state this is what i'm talking about when I use that phrase, the total state, this is what I mean, right? This is this is what Carl Schmidt predicted would happen when the political penetrates all other social spheres. This, if you want to create egalitarianism, artificial equality across of outcome across all domains of human existence, you basically have to have a totalitarian state because naturally people are different. Naturally, people are not equal. They might be equal before God, but they are not equal individually or in groups and that means that if you don't have a totalitarian state penetrating every single form of social interaction controlling every single thought action piece of media that you consume everything that you do then there might be an opportunity for inequality and so the only way to continually ensure inequality among unequal people is to have total control of the state absolutely right Oren. and i and again like the we take a look at the word talos right that aristotelian concept of like the the final drive or what is the final cause of humanity what is the thing that we all strive to be i mean that's what we mean by that egalitarian um teleology there i mean consider how quickly we've we've seen the words equality change or even the code shift from equality to equity um, and so even those older definitions about equality of outcome versus equality of opportunity, even that has been so fundamentally reconstructed by this, you know, political dialectic that we see from the left. Everything is about that, this fundamental reorganization of society. And and another, and, and again, this is why we, I recommend and Oren recommends you guys read Nick Land, especially this, uh, The Dark Enlightenment or some of the Xenosystems essays, because Nick Land sort of recognizes that People are different. Groups are different. The way that we approach things is going to be different based upon how what, what we were born into, what we were socialized with, what we're exposed to. And so when we start saying, no, everything can be equal, everything is we need to be equitable. We need to have this sort of Harrison Bergeron style way of pulling people down so that the less abled or the less opportune or whatever choices people make bad choices, they, they have the right opportunity. All that this does right is promote this sort of communist egalitarian everyone's going to be equal it's all classless but it never is that way in communism as we know because people suffer people die and people do so and in xenosystems nick land writes a great essay called on discrimination 
And some of you might already be thinking that that's a little uncomfortable. But what he means is, is that we discern or we discriminate between choices that are typically good for us or bad for us. And egalitarianism is sort of a way to weaken our immune system against making rational choices that are good for society. Should we be letting drag queens around kids? I know your gut instinct and your brain tells you that it's not. But the sort of egalitarian telos that is a part of everyday progressive society is trying to weaken that immune system so you can say, actually, no, it's okay. Or actually, Juneteenth is actually a good holiday. Or um, you get the, the infamous David French, the conservative case for the most leftist thing you can imagine, because that is someone who has been infected with sort of that egalitarian teleology and their ability to discern and discriminate and to make wise, competent choices uh, has disappeared entirely. Absolutely. All right, let's go ahead and jump into our next one here. So more dialectics is more politics and more politics means progress. He's got that air quotes there or social migration to the left. The production of public agreement only leads in one direction and within public disagreement, such impetus already exists in embryo. It is only in the absence of agreement and of public uh, articulate or, or of and of or sorry, and of publicly articulated disagreement, which is to say non-dialectics, non-argument, subpolitical diversity, or politically uncoordinated initiative that the right-wing refuge of things like the economy and civil society more widely is to be found. All right, so let's go ahead and take that one from the top here. So more dialectics is more politics, and more politics means um, progress or social migration to the left. So again, Cthulhu only swims left as you debate these essential core questions, right? Democracy, as a lot of people understand it, is a tool of leftist uh, 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 kind of uh, advantage. It will always advance leftward over time because it was it will always start with something that a lot of people are trying to resolve, but eventually will end up deconstructing core things about humanity, about nature, about truth, about goodness, and will leave them in ruins. Yeah, I mean, this is, again, where he says that, you know, every argument's an, un, you know, an opportunity to rule. This is how you get it. This is why everything is subject for debate. Because once you tear up baseline, what we agree on, you know, two plus two equals four, the man or men and, and women or women, once those things are upended, um, the only direction you can really go is further leftward. Um, and that's, I, th I think, our, our current year, 2023, is a perfect example of um, how well this is aged in terms of um, just proof of how we've socially migrated in just a short period of time from 2015. So eight years from, you know, the legalization of same-sex marriage, we just want to get married, bro, to actually know we need to castrate your children and they should be dancing in, in drag queens and acting like strippers in, in public uh, to a point where people photographing drag queen story hour events are told by police they cannot record because there is exposed genitals around children and that would constitute violation of child pornography laws. Right. That's how bad it's gotten in the last eight years. The, the direction only moves leftward. It, it's amazing. Everyone doubted the sign, but now apparently just, uh, you know, uh, you know, publicly exposing yourself to children is no longer illegal in the United States. It seems to, it seems to be the de facto uh, law enforcement position now. Uh, tr truly an amazing thing, uh, but I guess entirely predictable, very sadly. Uh, so a, a lot of people might look at this and they might say, all right, Oren, all right, Prudentialist, but like, this means we can't have political arguments, like engaging on anything is a, is, is a mistake. What, what does this mean? Like, how are you supposed to do any politics? 
So I want you guys to look at the left right now, right? So for instance, um, Joe Rogan has been like offering hundreds of thousands of dollars to try to get you know significant scientists to come on and debate uh, RFK Jr. on you know the pandemic and vaccines and lockdowns, all that stuff. I'm going to be very careful with our language here because YouTube, it's still unclear what they're going to hit us for, that kind of stuff. But he's trying to get a debate going, right? Yeah. And everyone on the left is like, no, no, you don't debate these people. No, you don't talk to these people. The science is settled. It's over. We're standing on this and we're not having this discussion no matter what. Now, if these people are all crazy, if they're all bananas, right? It's all, it's all a bunch of MAGA, you know, uh, Trump 2024 cutards, right? Standing up on this stuff. Then it should be really easy for a trained scientist, someone who's at the very top of his field to walk in and be like, okay, this is how it actually works. You're an idiot boom done i'll collect my hundred thousand dollars thanks for having me on your podcast but everyone's telling them not to do this why well because the left understands this game because they played it that's how they got into power that's how they got you here they know what happens if you want something to be unassailable if you want something to be a core and foundational truth like they want the uh, narrative of the of the pandemic to be then you don't debate it ever you stop pretending you care about free speech and you censor everything surrounding it you make it unassailable you make it impossible for people to present any kind of other understanding of that core truth because they don't want it broken down so left understand this it's it's not like this is some silly right right wing thing that nick land is making up here the left it, it behaves exactly like the right should have in the first place when it comes to things like you know uh gender identity or child transition any of this stuff they should they behave exactly like uh, like the right should have when it touches any of their sacred cows because they understand that having a dialectic around the issue now that they've established kind of total control over the position and made it the default isn't something that they want so what we're talking about here is not some crazy idea of like uh, you know right-wing uh political theory this is literally just how the left operates once it has power and I'll, I'll, I'll hit two points on this because it's kind of important to hit home on it. Go back in time to, say, the 1960s and 50s when things were far more conservative and far more sane in this country. You want to know how bad things have gotten in terms of this like political agitation? When we talk about academic freedom in the United States, they mean trying to let like, you know, um, Young Americans for Liberty or Ben Shapiro talk at a, at a college campus when 60 years ago, there were numerous political journals and, you know, cultural, you know, periodicals from the Saturday Evening Post to more conservative uh, publications that were telling, you no academic freedom means letting communists into the schools and letting them rule over it. And so that kind of tells you how far things have gotten. But the other thing to keep in mind is, is that you might be saying, well, Prudentialist or well, Oren, you know, there are times where, you know, if we show up and we, we make our, we state our case, uh, we can prove things and we can get them banned. And that tends to be the case. Sometimes we've seen it school board meetings or protests. And keep in mind that sometimes you will find yourself on the other end of the FBI's watch list or sometimes even taken away and arrested by the cops when you do so. But when you show up to these events and you go back there it's not that you're making an argument, showing that you have bodies willing to like stand up for your cause. And um, I, I know it sounds kind of cliche, but Robert Heinlein in Starship Troopers, you know, when you vote, you're exercising political authority or using force. And force is the supreme authority from which all other authorities are derived. And that's a, kind of an important thing, I think, to remember in this context here, whereas they know they can't give you any ground because they might lose it and they might expose you to people 
So they have to keep on their power and power means not exposing you to anyone else and using that supreme authority, violence, the state, the total state to arrest you when you try and stand up against it. And it's important that when you look at these things that not every argument's ever going to be in good faith. You have to really know the person to know if they're in good faith. And if not, well, then, you know, odds are you're going to find yourself somehow either being logically proven by the leftist form of logic that they're right, you're wrong, or they'll just take power away from you and convince the audience that, you know, it's actually their cause is the right one. It's the same reason why we've seen internet blood sports debate or die yeah. out the same way we've seen political debates die out in the public space. Exactly. And that's, I think that that last point is really important, Prudentialist. Remember that you can have productive conversations with your loved ones, with your family. Like there are things that you can do on a one-to-one -one or small scale uh, kind of discussion. But we're talking about large-scale mass politics. And in the realm of large-scale mass politics, you're not trying to convince an individual person who you share a culture and a tradition and a, and a like a physical geographic area with. You're trying to convince a bunch of people you've never seen and you've never heard and they're, they're nameless and faceless to you to kind of go in a specific direction. And so that is a very different type of interaction. That's why you said like internet blood sports die out because they event the end of the day, they don't do anything because the people there are completely mercenary. They're not part of any particular you know religion or culture. They don't share a particular moral vision. There's no substrate on which to build consensus. And so when they go after each other, it just becomes just a ruthless snide attack of, you know, maybe reframing things relentlessly or, or personal attacks, these kind of things, endless citations that just get refuted and then return back to the other person. They just become boring eventually other than people screaming at each other because they, they, there's no hope of any kind of actual resolution in the dialectic. And that's why when, you know, Land talks here about kind of all these, you know, why the right seems to find refuge in all these kind of economic or other types of civil society because they're the ones that are still built on kind of these innate hierarchies these natural truths these these things that don't need to have discussions or debates because they are already understood inherently uh the system doesn't work without them and so that's why those seem to be the refuge uh the refuges of the right which he'll kind of explain more here in the next uh paragraph when no agreement is necessary or coercion demanded, negative or libertarian liberty is still possible. And this non-argumentative other or dialectic uh, of dialectics is easily formulated. Even in a free society, it doesn't need to be. Do your own thing. Quite clearly, this uh, irresponsible and negligent imperative is politically intolerable. It concedes exactly, or it coincides exactly with leftist de uh, depression uh, retrogression and depoliticalization. Nothing cries out more urgently to be argued against. So basically, Nick Land says, uh, they're not going to leave you alone. <laughs> basically, the team that wants to win will never leave you alone because actually uh, you can't be left alone because saying, I'm just going to do my own thing and I don't want to interact with you and I don't want to debate with you and I don't want to disagree with you. I'm just going to build my own thing over there. That's actually way more dangerous than argument to the left because then you might produce something good, right? This is why we talk about building instead of arguing forever on the internet. This is why institutions and alternatives are the right wing's way forward because by creating something better, the right creates a far better 
argument than it does by you know infinitely getting trapped in some cycle about debates about Juneteenth or whether or not a man can become a woman. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is the sort of, I, I get it. We all have this knee jerk libertarian thing of, uh, or more libertarians, I would say, than just regular people. I mean, most people want to be left alone and that's a respectable thing. But when you see someone out there that kind of like jokingly chuckles and says that I just want, you know, gay married couples to defend their legalized weed with automatic weapons, that's the ultimate for version of this uh, negative or libertarian liberty still being possible because. All that that does is that, you know, you tacitly endorse this leftist frame and you can frame it in your libertarian politics all that you want. But at the end of the day, all that you've done is, is that you've given tacit, you know, endorsement or coordination that um, you're, you're with the left on this one. And I mean, uh, outside of the Mises, you know, caucus inside the Libertarian Party, there's no greater example of this when they're, you know, they went from taxation as theft to now rent as theft. Uh, sort of the classic sort of leftist understanding of their relationship to landlords and their money. So uh, quite, it, it, it indicates that, you know, anytime that you try to go to that negative or libertarian liberty, that you just want to be left alone, that, oh, what they do in the privacy of their own homes is fine. Um, it'll stop being in their privacy of their own homes and it'll come after you real quick. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So uh, we'll go over our last paragraph here that we're going to read for today. Um uh, obviously, as you can tell, we're spending a lot of time with each one of these to make sure that we kind of break it down for everybody. Uh, so we, we're not going to be going too far, just just uh, five or six paragraphs here, but uh, more more than enough here to kind of uh, do in one bite-sized chunk. So uh, at, the at the opposite extreme lies the dialectical uh, ecstasy of theatrical justice, in which the argumentative structure of legal proceedings is coupled with uh, publicization through the media. Dialectical enthusiasm finds its definitive expression in a courtroom drama that combines lawyers, journalists, community activists, and other agents of the revolutionary superstructure in the production of a show trial. Social contradictions are staged, antagonistic causes articulated, and resolution institutionally expected. This is Hegel for primetime television. And now for the internet, it is the way the cathedral shares its message with the world. Kind of speaks for itself, doesn't it, Dora? <laughs> well, now that we've kind of broken all that down, I think it is a lot. Yeah, I think I think that that paragraph probably wouldn't have made a lot of sense to how we started with that before. one. Yeah. Right, but I think once you kind of understand each piece of it, this makes sense. So, right, right, what he's saying here is the apparatus of the cathedral, all of these different nodes that we've talked about—the media, academia, uh, you know, the 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 uh, the news. Uh, all of the different uh, educational, all the different uh, cultural drivers, uh, they are all moving to kind of put these, you know, isolate a issue, a social issue, put it on trial for everyone, create the show trial atmosphere, this, this circus. And this is kind of the sacrament of the left, right? To take, okay, we found a new issue. We found uh, a new minority. We found a new oppressed victim group. We're going to put that up on display. We're going to have a, a grand discussion where you know, the, the, the bigots will shout their words and the, the, the reactionaries will shout their words and we'll fight against that oppression and we'll bring the truth and the evidence and, the, and, and we'll put it all on display for everyone to see. And then these people will be punished in front of everyone. The, 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 all these different groups will work simultaneously to kind of, uh, you know, community activists, journalists, lawyers, they'll all work together to, to punish these people. And then you'll feel that cathartic rev uh, resolution as everyone kind of 
once again comes to the conclusion that like liberty has been protected and individual rights have been protected and the weak and the helpless have been have been made whole and and everyone has been brought into closer equality and we've destroyed the hateful uh you know bad guys who are holding on to their their old way of life clinging to their their god and their guns right and once we w- once we've done that then we can once again start the cycle anew and find the next group and the next victim and we can we can put this whole episode it's like a it's like a, one of those uh, pr- crime procedurals, right? Like it starts, like there might be a new killer. There might be a new uh, set of evidence. But at the end of the day, you always know how, where they're going to find, who the victims are going to be, uh, and, and you know that the person's going to be punished at the end once you get that, that really uh, uh, cathartic uh, resolution at trial, right? Yeah, I mean, like this is why nowadays, you know, we, we, we've seen this ranging from Derek Chauvin to Kyle Rittenhouse, Kyle Rittenhouse proving the narrow exception to the rule, but there's still a lot of dialectical damage from that, that for, for the left, right. It doesn't matter that Kyle Rittenhouse, I mean, they, they really are upset that he got off and was found not guilty. What that indicates for us is that if you want to defend yourself against criminals that are out to kill you and are trying to disarm you and kill you and you, you know, shoot them in self-defense, uh, they want that illegal, uh, you know, a right that we have enshrined in a lot of places with castle doctrine or the second amendment. They want that gone. And the same way with like Derek Chauvin, it doesn't matter what the actual facts of the ground are that he had more fentanyl in the system that would kill more than one person. Um, you know, the court of public opinion, this big dialectical ecstasy, this primetime television drama on Twitter, on YouTube, everywhere that you can imagine, 24-7, constantly litigating and relitigating all the reasons why he was wrong. Um, you know, it doesn't matter if you've done the right thing, like that Daniel Penny character who was, you know, tried his best to put someone in a chokehold and to ensure that they wasn't threatening women or children. Um, in the court of public opinion, he's a racist bigot and we can't let white people defend themselves in subways or things like that. That's the nature of this ecstasy. And so when we, they, they talk about canceling people or cancel culture, that's what they mean here about this uh, dialectical ecstasy, this prime time, wonderful mock trial that we already know how it's going to end. They're going to call you a racist. They're going to find some reason. They're going to go through like 12, 20 year old tweets or whatever and find ways to get rid of you from your public platform. And, you know, we see this sometimes with the left and we can sometimes smile and be happy that, you know, oh, that weird, you know, JK Rowling or whatever is getting eaten over that. And it's so sad. But on the other end, you know, she was part of a much earlier form of the dialectic and she stopped. This is the same thing with those. I didn't leave the left. The left left me. Um, They helped perpetuate to get them where they are. And they're just upset that they're no longer a part of the in-group because they disagree on a particular issue. And again, once they disagree and there's an argument and you're on the wrong side of that argument, congratulations, you're on the far right now. And that's the way that this ratchet turns leftward and leftward. Yeah, and that's so important. So many on the right, they see that process and they're like, oh man, uh, we're on the verge of victory, man. Uh, all the all these uh, people who are far left are now on our side. And that, that means we're right around the corner. No, you're just watching the inevitable take place, guys. You're just watching... This too is part of the process that it sheds those who are unwilling to go along with the next step of the revolution and it turns them into new enemies, which it needs in order to fuel that fire. The process can't continue unless they have more enemies, right? And they've they've driven so many people into basically like just, uh, you know, being being uninterested or completely unplugged with some of this stuff that they have to like shave off pieces of their own movement so they can then burn them in the fire to kind of continue to feed the fuel. Now, the good news is eventually the, the the revolution does eventually eat everything, I guess. Like, yes, I guess 
the, the good news is eventually they, you know, your war with reality, you lose it. Um, and they will destroy kind of every person who could possibly ever follow their movement. You're, that does eventually happen. Uh, but, it, but it happens well after kind of a very serious impact on your civilization. So uh, it's, it's, a, it's kind of cold comfort if you understand kind of the end of that process is not natural. It's, it's, it will come into a natural end, but yeah, no, no one you love will be around to see it if it does. So it's one of those things that, uh, you know, the, 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 the right can't just take for granted all the time. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of what Nick Land sort of said. I know it's in Meltdown. It has a totally different context. But I mean, even in this leftist dialectic thing that, you know, nothing human survives the near future. And I think you can definitely see that, whether it's Mary Harrington talking about like the cyborg theocracy when it comes to, say, the transgender movement, um, who I know that you just recently had on, um, or, you know, even when we see it today. And I mean, this isn't to dis, um, denigrate the character of some individuals that are prominently against wokeism and wish to see a return to classical liberalism. But I mean you look at some of the more popular figures that talk about this, whether that be James Lindsay or someone else, and you'll see that in the past that they were progressive new atheists of the George W. Bush era and that they defend these things, but they think it's gone too far. And it illustrates that the dialectical environment that the left uses here does eat their own. And they find people like James Lindsay as these quote unquote odd bedfellows on the right when he hates the right just as much as he hates the woke. If not, he hates the right even more. And it tells you that that's kind of where we're at, that the, the, the ratchet moves leftward. Some people really miss where they used to be as the, the premier frontier fighting force on the left. And now things have gone too far and maybe we should step back a bit and things have gone crazy. Um, but that means that they're on the same camp as the people that they just despised five minutes ago. And they're not your friends either, despite the fact that they may agree with you on some points. And I think that's really important for us to keep in mind when we look at how these word games get played, how these public theatrics happen, um, you know, whether it be over the Dodgers stadium and that awful sort of drag group, uh, you know, mocking and humiliating the, the Catholic church, um, you know, they're, they may not have all the fans in the stadium for it, but for them, it's about accepting the you know, progressive ratchet that, you know, the only safe religion to criticize is Christianity. The only people that is okay to, to mock and denigrate are just regular people who are sports fans that want to do things. And it tells you that everywhere is a threat to them. When they say the personal is political, believe them. Because for them, every personal action you do, from your tastes and music to the movies to what you consume, those are all political choices to them. And that may make you think, yeah, these leftists are really unhappy people, and they are, don't get me wrong. But for them, this is their mission. This is their egalitarian teleology. This is their end point, their cause for human existence. And that's what they believe in. And you see this from everything from baseball to coffee, the war on Christmas, Starbucks, the Red Cups, all of that. It's all present right before you. And um, Nick Land, I think, does a really good job of breaking this down. And that these are tools that you can use to sort of identify, maybe I shouldn't argue about this. And just recognize, like Oren tweets all the time, to argue about it is to lose. And just recognize that you should just say no and try and um, shut that stuff down as soon as you can. Yeah, sometimes people ask me why I repeat things so often rather than like getting into quote tweet debates with people. And well, I'm I'm putting some of my Nick Land uh, lessons into practice, guys. That that's and it seems far more effective, I think, uh, oftentimes simply standing on and stating observable reality. Uh, rather than attempting to uh, kind of create uh, and fall into the dialectic uh, that many want you to. But yeah, I think uh, this passage is really essential. I think uh, the kind of those uh, realizations that the Prudentialist was talking about with political uh, supersaturation being a, an essential part of leftist control 
is uh, something that I think a lot of people really need to grasp. Again, that's when I talk about the total state, that's what I'm talking about. Uh, something that uh, kind of explains why they won't just let you play video games, uh, why they won't just let you be alone. Actually, letting you be alone is the greatest threat they could have. Uh, letting you build something on your own that works, that is objectively better, that shows everyone uh, something that works better than what the left is forcing upon them is the most dangerous thing that the left could run into, not your best uh, debate uh, you know, squad uh, argument. Uh, that said, though, guys, uh, we have uh, uh, one or two questions from people over there. So we'll jump over there in just a second. Before we do, remember that, of course, the Prudentials and I will both be in Nashville, Tennessee this weekend at the Skildings Conference. Uh, we'll both be speakers there. I believe there are still some tickets available, though they are probably very few in numbers. So if that's something that you're interested in doing, uh, then you definitely need to go over there and grab that. Uh, Prudentialist, other than your uh, very impressive uh, long-running stream, what else should people be checking out? Uh, well, later this, well, I'm going to be at the conference event later uh, with you later this weekend. I will have a interview that will be premiering later this week um, with author Marty Phillips. He has a new book out called Millennium. It's a series of short stories sort of talking about the turn of the century, September 11th and the millennial generation. It's a really good piece of fiction. So I look forward to interviewing him about that. And then um, uh, just by all means, find me on, you know, the prudentialist.substack.com. I'll be having a few, um, articles out shortly as well. I'm trying to get as much stuff out while we're out on this conference. Um, but other than that, as always, I'm thankful to be on here and you can find me at YouTube, Telegram, Twitter, all the links at findmyfriends.net slash the prudentialist. Absolutely. Make sure that you're checking out everything the prudentialist is doing. All right, let's go over here to Jake Bowen real quick. Uh, thank you for $5. He said, land seems to argue techno capital inevitably erodes tradition does that mean a reorient uh, reorienting uh toward tradition is futile do you disagree with land so yeah jake this is a very difficult question you're right that land understands kind of the problem that uh traditional cultures were uh kind of acted as containment mechanisms for techno capital turned it kind of towards the good of the people that kept it growing out of control but kind of once those have been removed then you get a reaction that kind of consumes everything and bleeds over from one culture to the next so in many ways land believes that uh, this process is inevitable this brings us to the singularity in fact he kind of embraces the singularity and hopes that that helps us to escape uh what is otherwise kind of a degenerate uh, uh continuation of uh humanity uh, I tend to think that land is right about kind of the process we are in now, though I believe he is wrong in some respects, or I certainly hope he is wrong in some respects about kind of the inevitable inevitability of where that ends up. I think we will go through this process of uh, kind of th this uh, hyper uh, liberalization, just kind of burning through uh, kind of everything, all cultures and kind of understandings of humanity. However, this is why I also find people like uh, Alexander Dugan very interesting. He also predicts this, but he sees an opportunity of kind of something human to emerge on the other side of this for tradition to reassert itself. Um, there are things I disagree with Dugan with as well, but I don't think uh, Land is the only person who predicted this uh, kind of uh, progression of uh, events, but he's also not the only one who's kind of made predictions about what comes after. And so I'm not sure that his solution, his understanding is kind of the only one 
for what we're looking at there. But uh, Prudentius, I don't know if you want to tackle that one at all. Oh, sure. I mean, I think that he, Land sort of plays off of other major thinkers like Marshall McLuhan, who talks about like the great fragmentation that would come with digital society. Um, the same with like Jacques Ellul and more famously Ted Kaczynski, where he lambasts conservatives that, you know, it's really hard to preserve tradition when technology, you know, rapidly moves to a degree that social norms change. Um, I think that Land, like you had said, Oren kind of just embraces this and says, you know, coldness be my God and let's go from there. Um, don't know what to make of his weird fixation on like, you know, Calvinism. That's a talk for another day. Maybe you should have him on. But uh, I think that you might find an answer actually in the argument that some people are making like James Polis in his great book, Human Forever, that there is ways to reorient and to have tradition survive in the digital age. Because if not, um, who will catechize you? You know, your, your parents, your religion, your traditions, or will it be like the algorithm or artificial intelligence that is already shown to be increasingly leftist and egalitarian? So, you know, I would, I would argue that not re returning to tradition isn't futile, but returning to tradition and say, unless you're escaping to a monastery and you're abandoning the world in that instance, which most people aren't made to do, um, that you're going to have to have your traditions balanced with some kind of respect to the digital age that we live in. Um, this means that, you know, if you recognize that something is kind of eroding your traditions or making it harder for you to fight back, say, you know, social media is increasingly uh, programmed to be as algorithmically addictive as possible, maybe some form of technological ascesis would be necessary for that. I just, I don't think that returning to tradition or trying to keep tradition alive in an age of techno-capital is a futile effort. And I think if anything, in the midst of COVID and all of these totalitarian biomedical security state lockdowns, um, more people returned to religion and tradition and farming and things like that more than ever. So they can try as they might, but um, tradition, whether they know it or not, isn't going away. Yep, I definitely agree with that. And again, if you want to, if you want to get, that's just a short answer. If you want to get into a more technical uh, answer, again, you can check out some of the episodes I did uh, on Alexander Dugan and the fourth political theory. Um, I think uh, we we got into that on a pretty regular basis. Uh, so uh, if you if you want a, a more long drawn out uh, answer to that question, uh, there's a couple hours of it there for you to to kind of tackle if you'd like to. All right, guys. Well. Like I said, I think that this is very useful. I think that Nick Land is, again, not tackled as often because he's a more difficult author in many ways to understand uh, than, uh, than Curtis Yarvin. He will certainly never be uh, accused of incredibly clear uh, and simple uh, explanations of things. And so uh, my, my kind of goal is to bring uh, Prudentialists and others on to help me kind of break these down make it easier for everyone to kind of understand what's happening to this, these explanations. So of course, you know, you can read land yourself and you should, but if you would like to get more episodes where we kind of look at these, I'm going to be making that into a series. So you can go ahead and subscribe to the Oren McIntyre show. You can of course uh, go ahead and subscribe to this uh, YouTube channel, and then you can go ahead and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platforms. If you do that, make sure that you go ahead and, uh, give it a like or a uh, rating or a review that helps with all the algorithm stuff. Again, of course, please make sure that you're checking out all of the Prudentialist excellent work. And as always, we will talk to you guys next time.